Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Good morning, and welcome to Gospel Community Church. For those of you who are joining us online, which right now should be everybody, considering we're not meeting in person, uh, just so you know, my name is Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here at Gospel Community Church, and it's my privilege and honor to bring you God's Word today. If I would encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along with me. I'll introduce this all in a second, but if you want to go ahead and open up to Numbers 22, we're going to be looking at the second part of that chapter, verses 22 through 41. Now, we're taking a bit of a break from the book of 1 Corinthians to go into the season of Advent and talking right now about God's uncommon gifts of grace, ways that we haven't really realized that God is showing mercy on us and is showing grace on us. And today we're going to look at one of those things in Numbers 22 with the story of Balaam and the donkey. As I was praying for this sermon and preparing, one of the things I do in prayer is I, I work through a model. It just kind of helps me focus my thoughts as I go through, but I use the ACTS model. So that's A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Not something I always do. It just kind of helps me organize my thoughts so and keep me focused and attention on God. And as I was going through thankfulness, I was thanking God for some of the ways in which he's demonstrated his grace towards me and some of the things he he's made me experience that I've probably perceived as bad things that sometimes God has used things that maybe I didn't like, but he was growing me and disciplining me and helping draw me closer to him through even some experiences that I thought were unpleasant and just thanking God for the good and the bad that he has given me in my life. And in thinking about this sermon, Basically, Balaam is getting some uh, this uncommon gift of God's discipline that he, you wouldn't think he's very happy or pleased with. But as we move through the story, you see it kind of saves his life in this context. So the uncommon gift we're going to be looking at today is actually just a good smack to the back of the head. Sounds a little weird, but what I, I mean by that is basically God's discipline. God's waking us up from stupidity. It's almost a, a moment of God bring, snapping us back to clarity and realizing oh shoot, I'm doing something wrong. I'm doing something dangerous. This is pulling me apart from God. This is leading me into the way of destruction. And God is graciously pulling me back in with a little smack to the back of the head to say, wake up. I also think about the maybe a pop culture reference you guys will remember is the V8 commercials. What was this? Maybe like 15 years ago. And the whole marketing ploy was basically you drink our drinks and they have minerals and vitamins in them that will help you have better mental clarity. You'll be quicker and you'll, you won't make stupid decisions. And in the commercials, somebody would do something stupid and then they would smack themselves on the head and say, should have had a V8. So basically, that's, that's what we're looking at today. The uncommon gift of God just helping us recognize when we've done something wrong, when we're going in a dangerous direction and kind of drawing us back towards him and pulling us away from danger as a loving father who doesn't want to see his children stumble into the way of darkness. So that's what we're looking at with Balaam and the donkey. I'll go ahead and read the passage and then we will dive in. Numbers 22, 22 through 41. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And I'll provide some context right there. I know that's kind of jumping into the middle of the story. But. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. 
And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Then Balaam went to Balak, and they came to Kiriath Huzah. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to Bamath Baal. And from there, he saw a fraction of the people. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that we have to guide us and at times be that smack to the back of the head to draw us back into relationship with you that we oftentimes seek our own way. We love our sin. We love our idols. We will pursue them to our own destruction. But you as a loving father stopping something like a child running out into traffic, you pull us and draw us back in. You are for us, you're for our good, you're for your glory, which is good for your character, your nature, all of these things are good and you are for them. I pray that you would keep us for these things, keep us for you and help us to stay in relationship with you, in right relationship with you, not as a means to earn your love, but because we've already received it through the free gift of your grace in Christ. And let us look to that, uh, your grace as a guide in running back to you and in running from our sin as the much better uh, pursuit that this will lead us to life and, and life everlasting and life overflowing, like good life, God. Uh, pray that we would run to those good things that you've given us in this world. And we love you, God. We thank you for this opportunity and this mode that we're able to still communicate with one another. And we just pray that we are able to be in relationship, commune with one another, and fellowship. And we pray for the saints to meet together again soon, God. We love you, and we thank you for this time.
Amen. So a little context is needed here, obviously. I mean, it starts off with God being angry because he went somewhere. Well, why is God mad? That's probably important. And we are kind of jumping in the middle of a story that's hard to find some context. So let me back up even further. Actually, I want to go all the way back to Exodus because I know it's a very popular story. Many people know it, churched and unchurched. Many people are familiar with the story of the Israelites who are in slavery in Egypt. What had happened was God had rescued them. He pulled them out of Egypt. You know, he brought them through the Red Sea and he takes them into the wilderness and he gives them a law, his law, a good law, a law where other nations would look at this law and say, what nation has a God so near to him as this and a law so good as the one that he has given them? And then he even promises to bring them to this promised land, like a, a great place flowing with milk and honey, and he's going to prosper their way. And he's going to help them and be with them the whole time. And there's some grumbling and God needs to kind of correct them and get them back on the path as they continue on. A lot of grumbling, a lot of complaining, a lot of ungratefulness and unthankfulness as they move through. But as they move through the wilderness, as you read the stories like Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, as you read these stories, uh, the first five books of the Bible, You'll see that they get into like a lot of skirmishes and stuff as they go about their journey. It's a it's a big group of people moving through the wilderness. There's even they're taking up resources, you know, they're drinking water, they're hunting game, they're taking some of the crops and stuff like that as they move through. And so one king in particular is very concerned about the Israelites coming into his territory, although they're not going to stay there, but they're kind of moving through. But this king is very concerned about the Israelites. And he's heard about the stories of these people and how God is with them, how he brought them through the Exodus, some of the miracles he's performed, some of the amazing ways that he's provided for them and helped them win some of these victories in battle. And he recognizes that he needs to do something or he will lose control and power. And what he needs is God to be on his side. He needs God to come against the Israelites because God's already for them. God's helping them. He needs to somehow come against them. So this king, Balak, the king of Moab, he determines to seek out a prophet, somebody who speaks for God, speaks to God. If I can get that person on my side, then I can come against the Israelites. So he sends people to Balaam to bring him back to his country and basically pronounce cursings over them and help get God to go against the Israelites because he recognizes this is the only way He's going to come against the Israelites and not lose any of his control and power. And as we see later on in the story, he's very, very concerned and uneasy about these Israelites coming into his territory. And in the preceding passages coming up to verse 22, God, Balaam asks God, you know, should I go? Can I go do this? And God tells him, no. He says, don't go. Don't do this. And Balaam asks God more than once, almost like a child, they're not accepting their father's no at first, but coming again and trying to ask again and again and again. And Balaam, and it looks like in the preceding passages that God says, go ahead, you can go. But I don't think that that's exactly what happened. Because in verse 22, it says, but God's anger was kindled because he went. Now, why would God be angry, although he told him not to go? Or why would God be angry if he told him on the last instance to go ahead and go? And then he told him not to go twice before. What I think has happened <clears throat> is that Balaam has convinced himself that this is okay with God, 
that God is even blessing us and that God has even told him to do this. And this is something that we can do. We can convince ourselves that what we are pursuing, what we're doing is in accordance with God when really it's not. Sometimes it's something very plain and clear that scripture has spoken on, and we think we can convince ourselves our sin is so important to us. These idols that we chase and worship are so important to us. We will convince ourselves in our mind that God is saying something different than what he has already communicated to us in our word. And there are many examples like this. One common one that's just kind of in the church is um, like a young couple uh, living together, sleeping together outside of marriage. They can convince themselves that this is an okay thing to be doing, that they can pursue this thing, that God is not angry or that his word doesn't speak contrary to it. Even saying things like, well, we're married in God's eyes and stuff like this uh, to convince themselves that this is somehow okay. When really it's not. God's been very clear on this. Like sex has been made and created for the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman for all of life. You know, he's spoken clearly in his word, but we will trick ourselves and convince ourselves that somehow God is saying something different that he has clearly laid out in scripture because we want our sins so much. We're willing to believe a lie just so that we can pursue that thing, whatever it is. And that's exactly what Balaam is doing here. God said, don't go. And he's, he's, he's somehow convinced himself, no, oh yeah, God said I can go. I can go do this thing. And it really, it's because he wants money. Balak, the king, was offering him a lot of gold, a lot of money. Come here and I'll do this thing. And that's what ultimately convinces him in his mind that God is saying, this is an okay thing to do. So he goes. Uh, luckily, in the context of this story, God doesn't leave Balaam in his stupidity, in his, in his greed. He corrects him. Luckily, God doesn't do that to us either. Sometimes he brings correction, whether through other brothers and sisters in Christ or his word or even different situations that God will bring us to to help us because we're going towards destruction. We're heading towards a lie and God loves us too much to let us believe something that's not true and wants to pull us back to himself. Let's look at verse 23 as the story unfolds. Uh, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord standing in the way of Balaam. It's standing as an adversary, it says. It's against him because God does not want this to happen. And so what does Balaam do? He strikes the donkey upside the head to turn her back into the road because it's going off into the field away from the angel of the Lord who's standing there with a sword drawn in hand, ready to kill Balaam. So he strikes the donkey out of anger. Quick little side note. Um... I just wanted to say this when it, when it kind of comes up in scripture, uh, I think it's important to kind of address not, not a big deal, but we have been given dominion over God's creation. You know, the resources in this planet and the animals, God has put us in a higher order. We are made in the image of God. Animals are not. And he's given us dominion over them. Dominion though, does not mean domination. And Balaam striking an animal out of anger is not, not a good thing. And there's kind of an overlap between the culture sometimes and Christianity. Sometimes the culture has some confusion and stuff. Um, it is a good thing to care for God's creation and be kind to it. Like he's given us rule over it and stewardship. We're, we're to be cared, cared and good. Sometimes in the culture, this goes a little too far and it becomes creature worship where we're worshiping the creature and not the creator. But because people are created in the image of God, there is this overlap where they have concern and care for God's creation, God's creatures, his animals. And I think as Christians, we can say that this is the image of God being reflected in human beings that even though they're not Christians, even though they don't believe in the gospel, even though they don't recognize and acknowledge God's existence, 
their care for his creation is a reflection of the image of God in him. So I, I just a side note, it is not okay to just be domineering and abusive to animals and torturous and sick and sadistic in that way. We're to care for what God has given us. So Balaam striking this donkey out of anger is bad because of that. But also he's doing this because it's getting in the way of him chasing his idol and his sin. You always know that you have stumbled upon a sin or an idol in someone's life when they lash out in anger. When you are stopping them from being able to go and seek that pleasure or that idol or that comfort or keep that control, they will respond in anger. You're getting in the way of what they want to worship and give their lives to. The husband who's watching football and so invested in the game and worshipful of what's going on and the wife who's now trying to talk to him and interrupt him enjoying this experience, lashing out in anger, that is a clear sign of idolatry. He is worshiping this game on TV, which is not a bad thing to watch football, but he's put it in the place of God. It's so much more important to him that he's willing to be angry against his bride that he's supposed to love and have, you know, that's even supposed to take priority over football. But even he has even put God under a place of worship under the game. That's just an example. And there's many like that. And not just anger. Balaam here also demonstrates willing, uh, willful ignorance. He should have seen the warning signs when the donkey veers off the road. And we'll see this as we move throughout the passage. This is a donkey he's had for a long time that has never done anything like this. But we will remain will, uh, willingly ignorant in pursuit of our sin. We will ignore the warning signs, we'll ignore the danger, and we'll continue going towards it because our sin is so important. We will, it will, even if it's leading to our own destruction, we will follow it and pursue it. He didn't pick up on the signs. In verse 24 and 25, we see he hits it a second time. He smacks the donkey upside the head again when the angel of the Lord moves into a more narrow position where his foot is now being rubbed up against the wall. Balaam's angry again. How many times will his greed go unsatisfied? He needs to get there so he can get this money. And maybe he even wants to talk to a king because he feels like he'll be in a power of a authority or control or, or importance. So he's mad at the donkey and beats him again. In verse 26 and 27, we come to the third smack on the donkey from Balaam. Now the angel of the Lord has moved into a more narrow place where there's basically nowhere to go, and the donkey just sits. Any man of sense would know that something is up. Something's wrong. What, what's going on? I mean, it, it, it should be obvious. And even if you were in this situation and you had any kind of sense, you would think, okay, I might be coming into something dangerous here. My donkey keeps not wanting to go this direction. Maybe there's something wrong with the donkey. Maybe there's something wrong. There's something out here that I'm not seeing. But again, Balaam is choosing to be ignorant about the situation because his sin is so important. I don't care what could possibly happen. I need this sin in my life right now. I need this sin. I don't care. I'm going to remain blind to all the warning signs. I don't care if this destroys me. I don't care if it destroys my family, my relationship with my spouse. I need this thing now. That's how Balaam is thinking. It doesn't matter about the danger present. Again, we see at the end of verse 27, it says his anger is kindled again. His greed is going unfulfilled. He's mad at the donkey. Uh, verse, verse 28. And if four warnings were not enough, all, all the stuff that God has told Balaam, don't do. Don't go. Um, the donkey's going different directions. He's refusing to go. Now God opens the mouth of the donkey. He allows the donkey to speak. 
He's given all these warning signs, and now God is intervening in creation. He used very natural means to warn him. This wasn't anything special. He was using something very natural, a donkey seeing danger going away. And Balaam's stupidity and ignorance and desire for a sin was so strong, God has to supernaturally intervene and speak uh, or allow this donkey to speak its mind, essentially, giving it the sense and the ability to communicate what's going on, to hopefully bring some sense into Balaam. And what's funny about this story is that it's a donkey. That's what's so funny. And there's a lot of irony in this story, by the way, and I hope I can point that out because I, I love that stuff. It's funny. The animal in the story is a donkey. What do we associate donkeys with? Like a stubborn animal. We even have a term in our modern vernacular for a stubborn person. It's a different word. It's not donkey. But it's what we would call someone who is being stubborn and obstinate. But the real donkey in this story is Balaam. He is stubborn. He's a stubborn idiot. But it takes the donkey, the literal donkey, to bring him to his senses. And actually, really, that's not, that doesn't even bring him to his senses um, in itself. There's more that needs to happen. And look at the faithfulness of this animal. It's interesting the contrast between Balaam and this donkey. It's saving his life. It's drawn back three times now. So it's faithful to his master and faithful to God. This donkey only speaks what God allows him to. Balaam, in the next chapter, we're not going to go that far, but I encourage you to read it because it's, it is it is a very interesting chapter, kind of goes against what God tells him to do and speaks more than he should. And God kind of has to intervene again. Balaam has a lot of problems. Verse 29. Balaam says, he's, he's angered the donkey. The donkey said, you know, why, why are you mad at me? I've been your donkey for all this time. When have I ever done this? And Balaam says, I'm mad at you because you've made a fool for me. And this is, this is funny. He says, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. Balaam is so angry, he longs to kill the donkey with the sword. And this is another element of, of hilarious irony. In verses 31 through 33, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. This is what it finally takes. It wasn't the donkey. God actually had to open the eyes of Balaam to finally help him realize he is coming into some sort of danger. It wasn't enough to have a talking donkey tell you, don't go this way. He finally had to see the angel of the Lord standing in the way with, wouldn't you know it, a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam, from his anger, wants to kill this donkey with a sword because he perceives it to be stubborn, when really you have the angel of the Lord ready with sword drawn to kill Balaam because of his stubbornness. The angel even says, why have you struck your donkey these three times? In verse 32, I've come out to oppose you. And he says, the donkey saw me and turned aside these three times. And if she hadn't turned aside, surely just now I would have killed you. Crazy irony here that Balaam's so angry, wanting to kill the donkey and slay it with a sword, and essentially was keeping him from being slain by a sword himself. Balaam did not. Um, Balaam did not deserve to be slapped upside the head so many times, but God keeps giving him grace, and even even as we continue on in this passage, He continues to give him grace. And isn't it great that the angel even points out his stupidity to him? Like, why have you struck this donkey these three times? Did you not recognize that something was up? And I've said this before in a sermon not too long ago, we're not stupid people. Uh, even many of us at GCC, most people aren't incredibly stupid, but we will play stupid in order to pursue our sins. We will feign ignorance. We will pretend like this isn't a thing. We'll do whatever we can to pursue our sins. We'll do some stupid things and make some terrible decisions so that we can continue pursuing that sin as Balaam here does. 
And just a side note that I think might be important for context, especially when you look at verses 35 and 38, I believe that the angel of the Lord is God. I think that's actually God. When you look at 35 and what he tells him to do and what Balaam says later in 38, I, I, I believe it's God. Um, you don't have to agree with me on that, but I 100% believe that is God. Like James White says, everybody's allowed to be wrong about one thing. And if that's the thing you want to be wrong about, you know. Continuing on in verse 34, then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. This, this is actually good what happens here. This is a good thing. In this context, there's more to this story. And I'll, I'll kind of unpack that a little bit as we go through uh, Balaam's story as far as his, his story throughout the Old and New Testament, because he is talked about in the New Testament. So what happens here? Balaam acknowledges his sin. He confesses. This is actually a good thing. Unfortunately, he does kind of feign ignorance as you continue reading through 34. Romans 1.18 talks about this, that we, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It is our unrighteousness, our desire to sin that makes us suppress things that are obvious and true about the world or our situation or even what God has said. We will suppress it. We will put the truth away, maybe pretend like it doesn't exist or ignore it or come against it all so that we can pursue our sin. He says he will turn back. And this is good. This is what repentance means. The Greek word in the New Testament, metanoio, means to repent or to change one's mind, to change one's direction, to turn away, to not continue pursuing what you were pursuing, to repent. This is what Jesus was talking about. Our, our English understanding of the word repent uh, can sometimes confuse emotion with action. It's more being remorseful, which that can be a part of repentance. But in the Greek, repentance means to actually change, to change your thinking, to change your mind. So Balaam here demonstrates a willingness to submit and go back. But God has other plans. He says, uh, if it's evil in your sight, I will turn back. But God's going to do something else. Now, before we finish with the story, there is a grave warning in Balaam's story, his overall story. I do not believe that Balaam was one of God's people. And what I mean by that is I don't think he, is, he was saved. I don't think Balaam is in heaven with God, which, which may be confusing. But I think if you read 2 Peter 2.15, Jude 1.11, and even Revelations 2.14, I think it makes it clear. And as you continue into Numbers 25, I believe he was directly responsible for some of the sins that the Israelites fell into. How can someone... If you read the next chapter and you see his interaction with, with the King Balak and his um, the cursings, I don't want to spoil the story, the cursings that he pronounces over Israel or whatever, really they're blessings, um, but go read that story. How is it that someone that can seem so close to God fall so far? How could this happen? God, God is sovereign. God knows all things. He's determined all things. You look at Isaiah 46, 10, it says he declares the end from the beginning. He knows the ending to the story because he is the author. His sovereign, he is sovereign over the ends just as well as the means. And, and what I mean by that is God may, he has in this story, and he may very well be using his grace and his patience and his mercy with you to condemn you. There is a very serious warning in here. All the grace that God had given Balaam, not only was he using him to serve his purpose, he was bringing himself glory and helping the people of Israel, 
but he was also using this grace, these slaps upside the head, these little disciplines to bring Balaam back to ultimately condemn him. Listen to Romans 2.4, and this is important. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? All the ways in which God is demonstrating grace should be drawing us back to him. What should lead us into repentance and closer relationship with God could also very well condemn us, as it does to Balaam here. There's an old saying that says, if you give a man enough rope, he will hang himself. That is to say, you give them enough freedom, enough slack, enough patience, and eventually they will do something that ultimately leads to their, lead to their destruction. There's an interesting story that R.C. Sproul tells about a lecture. And I mentioned this before, but I, I think it's really interesting story in light of Balaam and all the grace that God is giving him that should have led him into greater repentance and should have led him closer to God, but ultimately, I believe, drew him away and helped and led to his fall into darkness. R.C. Sproul had a class, and there was these assignments that were due at certain parts throughout the semester. And the first time one of these assignments was done, there was a student who came up to R.C. Sproul and said, hey, I don't have this yet. Can I bring it in a couple days later? And R.C. Sproul said, sure, it's not a problem. I'll give you full credit. Well, the next time there was another assignment that was due, there was less students who turned it in. Now there was like four or five students that didn't turn the paper in on time. The next time there was more. And then finally, when he asked for another assignment to be turned in, none of the students turned it in. And one of them even said, oh, don't worry, we're good for it, Sproul. R.C. Sproul's reaction was, no, it was due today. If you guys don't have it, that's a zero. And he marked him down for a zero. One of the students shouted, well, that's not fair. And R.C. Sproul said, oh, you want fair? Let's see. So he goes back into the other assignments that were late and starts marking them as zero. And of, and of course, he, he showed them some grace and everything. This was a teaching moment for them. Grace is no longer grace when it is expected. When you expect God's grace to always be given to you, that's no longer grace. That's stubbornness on our part. That's ungratefulness. That's unthankfulness. As I was saying in my prayer this week, just thankfulness for even the things that I perceive as bad that God could be using as an uncommon gift of his grace to draw me back into repentance. I could be going off in a direction I may not even realize in my own stupidity and arrogance and ignorance towards sin that I want to keep pursuing. And God is lovingly smacking me on side of the head as a good father who disciplines his child saying, come back to me. Be mindful of God's grace, smacking you upside the head. Uh, he could be using it to draw you closer, or it very well could be leading to your downfall and heaping greater judgment upon you for ignoring the warning signs. Verse 35, and the angel Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the words that I tell you. So Balaam goes, God is now going to allow him to continue, but not without serving his purposes. He's going to use him. Uh, God is going to use an evil and stubborn man to bless God's people. Go read the next chapter. It's awesome to kind of see how God is preserving and protecting the people of Israel, even though they're they're stubborn. You know, they're ungrateful. They're, they're whining. They're complaining. And God is still protecting them. And they don't even know. Uh, read the next chapter. It's incredible. They don't even realize how God is protecting and preserving them. They're just continuing on grumbling. And God is still sovereignly keeping his people. 
And, and an interesting note, there is, from this story, there is no purposeless evil in this world. There is nothing in this world that is taking place that is bad, that God is not using for the good of his people and for his own glory. That sounds hard. And, and I'm not saying that we say that and don't empathize with people in their pain, and we can. The Bible even tells us to cry and weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. But the truth is that God doesn't just allow purposeless evil, and there's nothing that happens in this world that God is not using for his good and his glory. We see a great example of this in the next story of how he's ruling and reigning over some of the things that you wouldn't even think he had control in, even how, even though it may seem very small. But the cross is where we see his sovereign hand bringing about the greatest good and the worst evil. The only man to have never sinned, deserve, deserving of no punishment, received the worst punishment, stepped into a history with the worst form of punishment. This darkest moment in human history, God turned around for our greatest good and his glory. This is something we will praise him for infinitely. The fact that we don't have to earn our way before God. We don't have to be these perfect people, but that Jesus perfectly lived on our behalf so that we can now have his righteousness and we have been brought into God's family as his children. This is incredible, but it was an evil moment and God purposed it for his good and his glory and our good and our glory with him in heaven one day. So there, there's nothing happening in this world that God isn't using. Not to say we can't empathize with people, by the way, I do want to stress that. Uh, so God is going to use this situation to bring his glory. Look at verses 36 and 37. Balak, again, this king, so uneasy about these Israelites coming into his, his property. Here we see another man chasing after an idol, his control. He doesn't want to lose it. These Israelites coming into his territory, he is desperately trying to maintain his power. And here's how we see that in these two verses. He's impatient. Where did he meet Balaam? At the border formed by Arnon. At the extremity of the border, he went to the edge of his kingdom to meet the prophet there. He could not wait. His impatientness to get the prophet here and stop these Israelites so he doesn't lose control. He's upset. Why didn't you come when I called, he says. Did I not send to you to call? Why did you not come to me? He's angry. He's upset. Clear signs that there's an idol present. And he's materialistic. He reminds Balaam again, don't you? Am I not able to honor you? Am I not able to pay you? Like, I can do this. I can give you lots of money. Remember? Remember? Come do this. I need you to do this. And what's funny, all this scheming, all this attempt to maintain control, and God will demonstrate his power over these schemes. And, and he will demonstrate his power over our schemes and our plans to demonstrate he is still in control. He is sovereign. This is what happens when you try to go against God and keep your own way. You don't even recognize the ways in which he's working to bring about his good and his glory to go against God. It's, it's foolishness that he's trying to go against God's people. And ultimately, read the next chapter, it does not work. Verses 38 through 41 lead into the context of the next story. I won't dive too much into them. Uh, they really do kind of set up the next story and what happens there. This is what I would like to leave us thinking about. Let me read Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 for us. This is an admonition for the church. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, we, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is an argument for God's loving correction. Those little smacks on the head that I talked about, this uncommon grace, this is an argument for this. It is for 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which others have participated, and we have all others are receiving this discipline, but you're not getting it, what does the author in Hebrews say? Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If God is disciplining you, if God is correcting you, you are a part of his family. Besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. As it, you know, he's, he's saying best to them. They, might have not, they may not have even parented perfectly, but they were doing it as they saw best to him. But what does he say about God? But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. God's wanting to share his holiness with us. This is crazy. This is a great father. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If, if you are a Christian, that is, if you have recognized and realized that you cannot earn your own salvation, you cannot do enough good works in this life to bring yourself into a right relationship with God. You recognize, I need a mediator. You realize that you need someone to stand in your place and you recognize that that is Jesus Christ, the perfect God man, and you've put your faith in him for salvation. You are a Christian. If, you, if you're a Christian, God will discipline you. And don't take this lightly. Embrace it as a loving act of your father. You know, I, I, I'm a father. I got four kids. I got two sons. And I can tell you when I discipline my children, there are two responses. Typically, there are two responses. There is either rebellion in which, you know, in my opinion, as a good father, I don't allow that to continue. I, you know, I continue the correction until they do option number two, which is reconciliation. My children, whom I love, want love when they've been disciplined by their father. Oftentimes when, when I've disciplined them and they're crying and stuff, I, I seek to bring reconciliation. I have my arms open. I give them a hug. I calm them down. I stroke their back and their head and tell them it's, it's going to be okay. I just, I need you to listen to daddy. Like, I love you. And I just don't want you to do that because it's, maybe it's dangerous. Maybe you'll hurt yourself. Maybe it'll lead to a behavior as an adult that will make life go difficult for you. I love you too much to see you continue in this. And so, you know, like a child running out into the street, I may discipline my children for that because I don't, because I love them and I want them to be saved. We have a good father who will demonstrate love and compassion on his children who run back into his arms seeking reconciliation. Do not presume on God's grace and scorn his discipline, this uncommon gift. When God gives you the uncommon gift of a good smack upside the head, run back into his arms. They are open and waiting for you as your loving father. Amen. Let's pray. God, just as Hebrews says, discipline isn't always something that seems joyful in the moment. But as a father, I know that sometimes my children do things that could cause them harm, or even they have learned behaviors that as an adult could make their life go difficult for them that I want to correct. And I, I recognize that. And I pray that you would help us see the ways in which you are guiding us back to yourself, that you love us too much to just let us go on in our own arrogance, in our own stupidity, uh, in our own desire for these sins that will destroy us. They, they really will. Some of these things we pursue, God, will ultimately lead to our destruction in this life and the next. 
God, don't let us fall into those things. We pray that you would be our father, that you would be close to us, that you wouldn't withdraw your hand for us from us, but that you would use it to correct, to discipline, and to hold, to pull us back in as our father who loves us. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Uh, thank you for sending your son to die for our sins so that we could be reconciled to you. That this dividing wall has been torn down through the righteousness of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for raising him up from the dead as a, as a promise and a guarantee that we too will be raised. Thank you, God, for all you've done. Thank you for all that you've given us, the good and the bad that you've given us to help grow us and pull us into relationship with you. Thank you, God. We consider it all a blessing. We love you, God. We pray that you'd be with people in this time. Uh, as people are struggling with mental health issues, we pray that you would be with them, guide them, strengthen them. We pray that you could open up lines of communication and fellowship so that we wouldn't have to go this alone, God. And, and we pray that you would be present with us, that you are the ever-present God, that as we are separated, you would be near to us. We love you, God, and thank you. Amen.